The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Thank you, James. Uh, you know, if, the, if you were here last week, you remember at the start of last week's sermon, um, when we talked about the return of Christ and Judgment Day, I mentioned that it wouldn't naturally be a passage of Scripture that I would choose to preach. And I want to renew that claim for this week as well, uh, where we talk about the Antichrist. Welcome visitors, welcome guests, glad that you're here. Um, and yet I was convicted too as I, as I read through this and I was thinking about that. I'm like, I really don't want to do this. I really don't want to preach that. I, I was actually, I was convicted and encouraged um, by God's word. And uh, how, how Paul tells us in another one of his letters, how he says, all of scripture, all of scripture is good. And, and this scripture is good and preserved by God for our benefit, and therefore it's good for teaching, it's good for reproof, it's good for correction, it's good for training and righteousness, that the man and woman may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so we come before God's word today with that joy and eagerness to learn from God's word. It's valuable and it's good. Obscure? Yes. Strange? Of course. Today, uh, specifically. Um, but very good for us, and so we receive it. And in 17 years of preaching almost every Sunday, I've never preached on the Antichrist. You're thinking, you look really good for being that old. I started preaching when I was eight years old, every Sunday. <clears throat> um, but I won't be able to say that tomorrow, because that's what we're teaching on today. Uh, there's a lot of gaps in this structure. There's a lot of gaps in this passage. There's a lot, honestly, there's a lot more questions uh, that, that are... Uh, come up that we have than, than questions that are answered, and yet there are some questions that are answered. And so before we abandon all hope in understanding this passage, we remember something, uh, we remember what, what Paul does say. We look at scripture, we go back to his word, and we look at what, what happens. So I want, my goal for today, I want to answer three of these questions that are really um, raised. Uh, what is the hidden threat to Christians? Uh, what are the characteristics of the Antichrist? And what is the ultimate hope for the Christian? These are the three questions that are concerned in this passage that we are going to answer today, which will be really good for us. And so first, what is the hidden threat? I say, I say hidden threat because there is a threat to the Christian. There is a threat to the Christian faith that isn't obvious at times. Paul speaks about this. Um, it's not so easily discerned. And Christians love to talk about the threats that uh, are in, in their life, don't they? Don't we? Uh, the political threats, right? The threat of being marginalized in our culture. The physical threats, right? These are, these are obvious. Uh, maybe not so much in, in our uh, culture. We don't feel threatened physically often because of our faith. But many Christians, uh, even most throughout the world, face physical threat because of their faith. There's social threats. There's th uh, threats of having our, our social rights and comforts infringed on. And Christians love to wage cultural wars on the threats to their privileges and their rights. And then there's moral threats, threats of obedience to God's word. And so there's like, well, we have to obey God's word and, and, and we need to be obedient. And there's threats to our integrity as Christians if people don't obey God's word. Paul doesn't address any of these threats in this passage. None of these threats are on Paul's mind. But one threat, the threat to the Christian is a hidden threat. It is the, the intellectual threat, the threat to the Christian's mind. The threat to the Christian who has become deceived in their thinking. Do you see that? Paul says, do not be shaken in your mind. 
And then he elaborates, let no one deceive you in any way. The imagery that Paul has in mind is like a boat that is securely tied to a dock. And in the middle of the night, perhaps, someone comes along the dock and unties that rope. And the boat slowly drifts off into the distance and into the open sea. And the, peop- the inhabitants of this boat are now drifting off far from the comfort and safety of the dock. And Paul's saying, don't let that happen to you. And the challenge that these Christians were facing were not threats to their physical well-being, but threats to their confidence in what God has already revealed to them. Threats to their, the security of their mind and their thinking and what is true. People were confusing them. People were speaking lies to them. People were, in this particular passage, false teachers have come and infiltrated their community and were teaching them a testimony contrary to what Paul had already taught them. That Jesus had already come, that his second coming had been revealed, and they should no longer wait for Jesus' return, that that had already happened. And Paul was worried that many were beginning to wander from the truth, and they were beginning to lose hope of the future coming and judgment of Christ. They were beginning to wonder, maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus has come, and we shouldn't wait for him. Maybe this life is all that we have. Apparently, there's a false teaching that was infiltrating the community. And so Paul is emphatic. As he says, he's emphatic to say, don't believe anyone who says this. Don't believe, even if that person is an angel or writes a letter uh, written, uh, claiming to be from me, or someone dressed in a Jesus suit. He doesn't say that part, but he's saying, no matter what happens, or even if they see a vision in the night at their bed, do not believe them. We even see these false heresies that are present today from even uh, Christian sects, so-called Christian sects, that even claim these very same things. An angel told me that Jesus has already come back. The greatest threat to the Christian faith here is not disobedience. It isn't knowing God's word and disobeying God's word. The greatest threat is wondering, maybe there isn't a right way. Maybe no one can really know the truth. You know, when you hear of false teachers, don't you have in your mind this, don't you picture this gnarly, beast-like figure going around snatching babies out of their cribs at night? It's false teachers. You know, that, oh, well, the false teachers in a church will be obvious. They're hidden. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. We don't, they don't look gnarly. They don't look scary. They don't drool from the mouth. They're people that are like us. They hide in plain sight. And there's a lesson to learn from the modern church as well. The lesson is this. Like every early church, the the modern church is plagued by deception and false teaching. And the deceptive teachings distort God's word and shake people's minds. And it shakes God's people from the confidence that they have in what God has said and his promises. And Paul says, don't be tricked, don't be deceived. And his remedy for how to do that, for how to stand firm... And how to remain confident and not be deceived or shaken or drifting from their comfort of that dock. Paul says in verse 5, he says, don't you remember? Don't you remember when I was with you and I told you these things? Don't you remember what I have said to you? The only safeguard against being deceived is to know and to hold on to the teaching of the apostle. They don't need to worry if he's changed his mind. He says, I'm not changing my mind because God doesn't change his mind. And God has said these things. 
Nor don't be confused if you hear anything in contradiction to what I've ever said, because this is true. John Stott, Bible teacher and pastor, says, Loyalty to Christ's teaching and the teachings of the apostles forever enshrined in the New Testament are still the test of truth and the shield against error. How do we know with all the confusing things that are being said today, who's really to know what is true? Who's to know which way is up? We go to God's word. It's a sure guard and test against all error. For a little while before I was a pastor, I, I worked as a teller at a bank. And every day handled tens of thousands of dollars of cash and came my way. And, and, and with the rise of counterfeit bills in our culture, it was very important for us to be trained in identifying counterfeit bills. But here's the thing. We were never trained to identify, to identify counterfeit bills by studying counterfeit bills. In fact, to my knowledge, I have never seen a counterfeit bill. And yet I can spot one. How? Because we train by studying the genuine article. They showed us real money. This is what it looks like. Here's the color of the fibers in the paper. Here, here's the, the composition of the front and the back. Here's exactly what it looks like, the proportions of the numbers and letters and the pictures on here, the detail. So we studied for hours the authentic, genuine article because there's, a, there's an endless degree and amount of ways to distort and counterfeit money. There's no possible way we can look at all the errors. And so we look at the truth. So that when an error comes along, we say, I don't know what that is, but I know it's not true. I don't know where that's coming from, but I know it's a fake. And this is what Paul says to them. Our culture and even the Christian church, is, it's riddled with false teaching. There are those who want to distort and deceive, and yet we stick to God's word. It's our only shield against, God's, against error, and it will never change. No matter what changes in our culture, what, no matter what counterfeit truths come our way, we can stand firm and have confidence and not be shaken and not be anxious and not be nervous, no matter what anyone says in the world, because we know God's word. So the biggest threat to the Christians here is not that we will know God's word and disobey it. Our biggest threat as Christians is that we will be easily drawn away from God because we have no idea what the Bible actually says. Is that you? I have no idea what is true and what is a lie because I don't know my Bible. I don't know what God has said. I grew up exposed to many conversations about end time prophecies when something would happen in Israel, whether it was a disturbance or whether it was a, a surge of peace and prosperity. Christians talked about the possibility of Jesus' return. I remember the Gulf War and the unrest in the Middle East, and surely this was a time of the, the sign of the times when Jesus would come back. If there was an earthquake in Japan or a famine in China, Jesus was coming back. And then the Left Behind books came out, right? And so many Christians have used the Left Behind books as guides for how to navigate the end times. And even the author himself said, I was pretending when I wrote this. This is fiction. And yet it's a manual for so many Christians. It is no more true than Harry Potter or the adventures of Frog and Toad. <laughs> Classics, in my opinion. And Paul says, there's no way that Jesus has come. There's no way that Jesus has come because when he comes, here are some signs of his coming. 
And that is that the Antichrist will be revealed. We will know him. And at that time, Jesus will be revealed. And so we don't know when he will return. We know what we do know in God's word. We know that he will come back. And when he does come back, we will know. And there are some events that will precede his coming. Now we get into the fun part. Let's get into the fun part of the passage. What are the characteristics of the Antichrist? Who is the Antichrist? Who's the, this apocalyptic figure that will, that will appear, whose appearing will usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ? You know, knowing how Christians have, have for centuries tried to answer this question, I think is helpful for us as we learn from some history. Christians forever have tied the identity of the Antichrist, unsuccessfully, I might add, to many people. The early Christians in the 4th century claimed that the Roman emperor, Constantine, was the Antichrist because of his persecution of, of Christians. But then Constantine himself became a Christian, repented of his sins, and became a Christian. And Christians were like, our bad. We're really sorry about the whole Antichrist thing. Welcome in. You're part of the family. You know, let's just uh, water under the bridge. You're not that apocalyptic figure that is like the horn of Satan. And then it was the powers outside of the Roman Empire that were attacking Rome from the outside that were deemed the Antichrist. Islam grew uh, much bigger in that time, and Christians labeled uh, Muhammad the Antichrist. But as the Roman Crusades advanced and stopped the spread of Islam within the Roman uh, Empire, Christians found a new target at the start of the Protestant Reformation. And the early reformers, which is the tradition we come from, deemed the Pope as the Antichrist and the whole papacy as the Antichrist for, their own, for taking their own glory and putting themselves in the glory of Christ and being the head of the church. And Martin Luther called the Pope the Antichrist. And the Pope said, you know what, you're the Antichrist. And they're like, well, we both can't be the Antichrist. And on and on we go. Accusations shifted then from religious leaders to political leaders. Christians gave this label to Napoleon, Bonaparte, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State to Nixon, Oprah, Barack Obama. And just so you know, every single American president has been labeled the Antichrist by Christians. And they've only been right once. No, I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> Should we, be, should we be guessing the identity of the Antichrist? I don't think it's helpful. It's not helpful. Should we dismiss the subject as, as altogether legend and folklore? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We need, here's what we need. We need humility. Church history, past and present, is littered with conspiracy theories of many kinds, taking obscure passages of scripture, interpreting those scriptures, applying them, uh, to, in a self-confident yet often very mistaken ways and in many different areas of life. And let this first be a warning to us to be more cautious than others have been in the past. With this topic, with any topic of obscure passages that we cannot know its meaning. And at the same time, let us learn from Scripture let us look at Scripture, seek to know and to understand and to be encouraged for how to live. And we can look at the characteristics of the Antichrist. And there's one primary characteristic of the Antichrist. He is called a man, the man of lawlessness. You see, let's look at that. The, to be lawless is not the same to be a lawbreaker. These are different things. To be a lawbreaker is to know the law and to rebel against the law. The spirit of the Antichrist is one that says, who is to say that 
what is true? Who is to say that there is a law? Who is to say anyone should tell us how to live? We make up our own truth. You see why we thought it was Oprah, right? So who is to really know what is right and what is wrong? We make up our own truth, and the one who infringes on our prosperity in life is the one that tells us how to live. We choose our own morality, and this is the philosophy of the Antichrist. And it was the same kind of deception that happened in the Garden of Eden. It was the same kind of deception that Satan used. And he said, did God really say that? Has God really said? You know, don't you see that this is appealing? Don't you see that this might be good for your life? Maybe God messed up. Maybe he wasn't thinking of your well-being. It's really up to you to figure out what is best for your life and then walk in those ways and then you will be truly free. And Eve believed the lie. When we're drawn away from the truth of God's word, then there's no limit to what lies we will believe. There's no limit to the deception we will fall into. There's no limit to the chaos and, and, and disobedience that we will embrace. And then Paul tells us what happens to a person who does that. Eventually, what happens to a person who starts with the idea of maybe God doesn't know what he's talking about. Did God really say this? So someone who is deceived, what happens next? We dethrone God from the throne of our life and we place ourselves on the throne. And we now say, we are the ones who are in charge of our life. We make the rules. We place ourselves and our feelings on the throne. And Paul says he takes the seat in the temple of God. He puts himself where God must be. The lawless person is not the rebellious person per se. The lawless person is not the person, the figure in our lives that is just always uh, uh, disobeying God, the renegade, the maverick, the, the rebellious one, the edgy one. No, it's the calm person. The lawless person is the person who says, what is right and what is wrong is not based on some eternal truth from the outside, but it's based on what we feel is right for us. And that's why when people say, I believe that we should be able to have sex with whoever we want to, they're really saying, I feel that people should be able to have sex with whoever they want to. It's why if we, people say, I believe that God would never show displeasure towards a person just because they haven't given their life to him, is really saying, I feel that God would not do a sort of thing like that. It seems cruel from what, how I feel that kind of God would be. And Paul says, there has been a spirit that is released into the world and it's going to grow. And the spirit that is being released and influencing into the world will infiltrate the church and many will become deceived. And what they will be deceived by is this idea and mentality and worldview that we live by our feelings and what we feel is right rather than God's word. This is a solemn teaching. You can feel it, right? It tells us that there is a downward, slippery path of death that begins with first our love for our own version of reality, then leads to a rejection of the truth, then it leads to a hardening of our heart from God, which leads to our future and eternal condemnation. You see, there's a process. There is a chain of events that happens. And it doesn't happen when God just shows up and Jesus Christ condemns us and we say, I never had any idea. You never warned me. It will happen slowly over periods of time, and it starts with a desire to be our own God. 
it starts with a desire to be in control of our own lives. And this power in the world has gone from being growing, it has been growing between the first coming of Jesus and it grows until the second coming of Jesus. Someone told me recently, you can never tell a person, you can never tell anyone that their feelings are wrong. Sometimes the way people talk makes me think that Jesus might be coming back tomorrow. (laughs) This is the spirit of the Antichrist. But let me close where Paul shifts his attention. And if if you sense that I'm trying to speed this up, it's because I am. (laughs) Paul's not concerned with the world drifting from lawlessness because he knows that that is happening and he knows it will only grow And we can then know that this lawlessness and the spirit of this world will continue to grow. Please, friends, please, Christians, do not be alarmed when you see the world acting like lawless, godless people. Please do not be surprised. We were told that this would happen. We are told that it will actually get worse. We are told that many within the church will be deceived and drawn away by these very same worldviews. Don't be surprised. And so Paul is not concerned with the world doing this. What he's concerned with is God's people giving in to the same lie. And so let's now turn to where he shifts. What is the ultimate hope for the Christian? Where do we, where do we rest our hope? What should we be focused on? This is a dark passage, isn't it? It's, it's sinister. It's deceptive. It's scary. Who's really safe in all this? But the scariest part of the passage, and let me encourage you here, the scariest part of the passage is not the Antichrist. The scariest part of the passage is what happens in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. See, we are painted this picture of the Antichrist, right? This monster, this apocalyptic monster that will deceive Christians with his kindness and winsomeness. And we're like, this is scary. The Antichrist is a scary figure. Uh Uh-uh. There's something scarier than the Antichrist. It's Jesus who will exhale with a puff of breath and bring to nothing this scary figure in scripture. Can you picture that? Jesus will come and the scariest figure in all of scripture will be brought to nothing with a yawn. The air used to dry your nails, ladies, antichrist destroyed. With an instant, the puff of air used to blow out a vulnerable candle. Jesus is scary. Can you picture that? In the midst of this dark passage, we see a hero that is far greater, far stronger, far more powerful, that even the the appearance of his shadow on the Antichrist, will bring him to nothing. And then we are told, this is who is on your side. This is who you have. For greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Are you scared about this? Are you scared about this apocalyptic future? You don't have to be. 
You don't have to be anxious. You don't need to lie awake at night wondering. You don't not need to be terrified. Because of the midst of this terrifying passage, we should hope in God. We should find comfort in the fact that no matter how dark the description of the man of lawlessness is, Jesus is still king and ruler of the world. A passage like this might make you feel a certain way. One that might make you feel this urge to say something like this, man, I really need to get things together. I really need to go home from this passage, change my life, get things in order so that this doesn't happen to me and I'm not brought to destruction. And that's admirable. And I want to encourage you to have a mentality of such of persistence and diligence and effort to glorify God. But let me direct that kind of thinking. Jesus is the hero of this story, not you. Jesus is the hero, the only one who is capable of of rescuing you from the demise and destruction of the Antichrist and all he brings to himself is not your character. It is the endurance of Christ and his promises. It is him fighting on your behalf. Why is he the hero? Well, he is the one, he's the only one who has ever resisted the devil's attempt to seek his own glory. For the devil came to Jesus personally and said, here's what I'll give you if you simply just give your life to me. If you, just, if you give up this, this, this plan of salvation for the world, I will give you everything. He is the only one who has ever resisted the devil's attempt to give into the, the question, did God really ever say that? Look at what you can have. Look at what you can gain from maybe just walking away from God and seeking your own glory. He's the only one, including you, including me. He's the only one who ever said, no way. I'm sticking to God's word, and he is true, and he is right, and he is just, and he is the giver of life. And not only did he not not exalt himself and place himself on the throne where God's glory was, Jesus humbled himself. You see that? The spirit of the Antichrist pursues us by enticing us to exalt ourselves in our life. Look how great you could be. Look at what you can gain. Look at what you can achieve. Look at the comfort that you will have. Look at the freedom that you will have. But Christ laid down his own life. Not only did he not exalt it, he gave it up. He doesn't use his power for his own benefit. He uses his power for you. His life for ours We will not need to seek our life and pleasure in life by forsaking the law of God, but by loving the law of God. Do you admit that the power to seek your own pleasure apart from God is there? Can you admit that? Can you look at your life and just admit to yourself, like, I admit that the power to not live according to God's word is there. It's present, and it's powerful. I want to do my own thing. And the world gives me countless ways to do it, and to do it in comfort, and to do it, and to be applauded. Yes, I admit that the power to seek my own pleasure apart from God's word is there. But then can you admit that you've put your own reputation in the place of God, your comfort in the place of God, your desire to be loved by others in the place of God and his reputation in your life? Can you admit the ways that you've sought to be your own hero in your life through just being a better person, having stronger character, letting your your record speak for itself rather than the righteousness of Christ? If you can admit all those things, then let me invite you to, to look at what Jesus has done. 
Look at what he has done for you. Look at what he will do for you. He is the only one strong enough to take the fangs of death and sin out of our hearts. And he does this by taking the fangs of death into his own heart. The only way that we can be rescued and forgiven of sin and protected from this awful day that is to come is by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. He takes our place. This is the mystery of the gospel. It's the mystery of grace. That God would, would, would not seek a place of glory, but he would lay down his own life for us. He would be our hero. Is he your hero? Is he your hero? Is the hero of your life, the hero of your soul, the hero of your love? Is he, is he on the throne of your life? Have you taken him off the throne of your life and placed yourself there? Well, repentance is that act of saying, God, I'm, I'm sorry for doing that. I'm prone to do that in every area of my life. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for what I've done. I'm heartily sorry. Take that place in my life that you rightfully deserve. And he loves to do that. He loves to take his place. And then he guides us in love. He guides us in truth. And he offers to us forgiveness of sins and hope for the future and comfort in his promises. So that when we read a passage like this that is utterly terrifying, we can rest. And we could laugh as God laughs. Because even the Antichrist is not scary to us. Is he your hero? Let him be your hero. Let's pray.